0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our very special Pediatric Grand Rounds. This is the Resident and Fellow Research Day, one of the best days that we have to showcase our talent and uh, our residency program, our fellowship and all the mentorship that our faculty uh, are involved with, uh, making sure that our fellows and residents do great academic work. And you'll see why that is uh, the case today. We have four outstanding representatives for fellowship and residency program talking about their own research. Uh, I want to give thanks to Dr. Sharon Smith and Dr. Justin Radolf for organizing this. Uh, Sharon is passionate about research, and and Justin, absolutely, there's no question about that. This is so important for them, and it's so important for me as the chair that we actually represent academics in in this way. Uh, So I'm not going to spend more time, so we give enough time for the presenters and the questions. And then we will. Uh, the organization is that after each one of the presenters, we'll have questions, two or three questions, and Dr. Radel will, will moderate that. So, Dr. Smith, again, thank you again for doing this. Please come up and introduce the session. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much. Um, so, welcome to Research Day. This is my favorite Grand Rounds of the year. Uh, a few brief thank yous. I wanted to thank Amanda Ross. Uh, she is the senior uh, program coordinator for several fellowship programs. She really did an amazing job organizing collection of abstracts, sending them out for scoring, uh, creating a smart sheet, putting together the program. By the way, on the Grand Rounds announcements in this link, there is a program, it's electronic, with all of the abstracts submitted from all of the residents and all of the fellows. And I invite you to read some phenomenal research. Um, I also wanted to thank the review committee. I leave you anonymous on purpose, because I don't want everyone to like try to bribe you into scoring abstracts higher. Um, But thank you for all the work in scoring all of the abstracts for this year. And Dr. Salazar, thank you for your unwavering support of training research here. It means a lot uh, for all of us. Um, And Dr. Justin Radoff, who will be up in just a moment, is our senior scientific advisor, professor of medicine. He has moderated every single grand, grand rounds with resident and fellow research since we started. And I am so thrilled that he's doing this. And lastly, before I let Justin take over, I wanted to thank all of the residents and all of the fellows who somehow in the middle of COVID were able to conduct an entire research project, do their analysis, write an abstract, and get it submitted, whether they're presenting here or not. You did an amazing job, and I I take my hat off to you. Congratulations on an amazing year. And for our four speakers, these are the four highest scoring best abstracts of the year, and I am so thrilled to hear uh, their talks. And I'm now going to turn things over uh, to Dr. Radoff to moderate our platform session. Justin.
2: Thank you, Sharon. This is always a great pleasure for me. It's also a very great honor. Uh, pediatric residency is obviously a time when people have to learn to become superb pediatricians, but we we hope to strive We strive to do more. We want to instill in them a love of academics, and hopefully a love of research. And I think that the talks that you're going to hear demonstrate that we are succeeding in that, in that mission. So for our first speaker, hopefully I get her name correct, is Anthe Sivolak-Nathan. I hope I got that, came close to that, who's going to be talking about language exposure of high-risk infants in a level 4 neonatal intensive care unit, a staff survey. Thank you, much.
3: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith, Dr. Salazar, and Dr. Randall, and thank you again for giving me the opportunity to present my research on language exposure of high-risk infants in the neonatal intensive care unit. So we know that in the preterm infant, when it comes to auditory system and hearing, they are unresponsive to sound in the first half of pregnancy. This is at about 20 weeks. After 20 weeks, we know that the auditory system starts to develop and it also coincides at the same time as the development of the inner ear cochlea. At about 26 weeks, the fetus can actually perceive and respond to speech and sounds. And about two weeks later, synaptogenesis as well as pre- and post-synaptic circuits start to develop. And around 30 weeks, the sensitivity and the frequency resolution is almost adult-like. And just below, you can see a timeline of the auditory development and the different phases. However, I'd like to point out that the cortical auditory pathway malination continues well into the postnatal period. So we know that in high-risk infants and in preterm infants especially, we have both speech and also language impairment, whether it's in receptive and also in expressive language. So, some studies have shown that in preterm infants, we have delays between ages 3 and 12 years of age. And this is both in simple and also in complex language functions. And some other population studies have shown that in preterm infants who have a birth weight of less than 1250 grams, we do see persistent language deficits at about 12 years of age. And they do tend to have more difficulties with both syntax, semantics, and verbal memory. And then in an extremely low birth weight infants, those who weigh less than 1,000 grams, so there have been standardized tests that have been performed, such as the Bailey Developmental Scale, where the mean being 100 points and one standard deviation is 15 points below mean. And there have been some infants who have mean language scores about one standard deviation below mean and then about 20% who have two standard deviation below mean. And about 34% in these studies have shown that they need speech therapy at two years of age. So language exposure is incredibly crucial. So being exposed to the maternal voice and also caregiver interactions helps fuel and develop these neuronal connections. And studies have shown that maternal voice is associated with behavioral as well as cardiorespiratory stabilization. And studies have also shown that when preterm infants who weigh less than 1,250 grams get exposed to adult words, that is, when they have a higher word count per hour at 32 weeks, they tend to have a better composite and expressive language scores at about 18 months of age. And other studies have also shown that when these preterm infants have been exposed to maternal voice compared to controls, they also have a better visual attention as well as quality of general movements at term. And at three months of age, some of these infants also have higher neurofunctional scores. And these studies all highlight how important maternal voice is. So in the NICU, it's very different to the maternal environment and the neutral environment. Auditory input, as we know, is critical for the development of speech and auditory cortex. Preterm infants, however, are deprived because of their shortened gestation. And the NICU environment has a variety of sounds. So for example, they tend to have electronic sounds and some even reach over 100 decibels. And sometimes you get prolonged periods of silence and you also have alarms, which is very different to maternal and other speech sounds. And these are significantly reduced. This in turn goes on to impact both auditory brain maturation, as well as subsequent speech and language development, which is very crucial to the preterm neonate. So the purpose of my study was to determine the current staff knowledge as well as practices with respect to language exposure in the neonatal intensive care unit. This here is the overall project outline in terms of the quality improvement project that occurred at both NICU sites at Hartford Hospital as well as Farmington. We initially wanted to conduct parent and staff baseline surveys. And then to to ascertain, what is the um, knowledge gap in terms of language exposure in staff at these NICU sites? Then we wanted to implement interventions for staff. So this included mandatory education, such as cornerstone modules, as well as parental education in the form of pamphlets. After this, we wanted to actually set up our own Read to Grow program and, and provide books in the NICU, as well as log cards as well and then continue to develop and monitor responses in both staff and parents. My part of the survey is the staff baseline survey. So in my study, NICU staff were invited to participate in an anonymous and in an online survey. The survey was developed using REDCap application, and there were 19 questions in total and are focused on two categories. The first being background knowledge and the second being staff practices. When it came to the background knowledge, there were prenatal and postnatal brain developmental questions, and there were three questions per category. And the next were the language outcomes, and there were about five questions per category. There were also staff practice questions, and this focused on daily patient interactions as well as parent education on language exposure, and this is about eight questions. The survey was distributed to all NICU staff over a four-month period from May 1st to August 31st. We also sent out staff reminders in the form of monthly NICU newsletters, staff emails every week. We also wanted to make sure that these surveys were accessible, so we posted QR codes in the NICU and staff lounges. So here is an example of some of the questions from our survey. So the first question focuses on prenatal brain development. In a fetus, By how many weeks of completed gestational age are all major auditory structures formed the correct answer being 25 the second is an example of postnatal brain development an example includes in a child brain development is greatest during the first and the correct answer being three years we also had questions about staff interaction so the last question here talks about do you talk to your patients during the following instructions and then we ask staff to select all that applied, whether it's care times, during procedures, during feeds, changing diapers, holding, and also during exam as well. So, this slide talks about the results from my study. So, in total, 96 out of 198 staff members responded to the survey, which is about 48% of staff members. So, the first is a bar chart, and this looks at the staff subgroup responses. So we saw that 71% of all attending physicians answered our survey in the NICU, followed by 40% of neonatal fellows, followed by 38% of physician assistants, and also advanced practitioners. We also had a high response from the volunteer cohort, which is about 74% of them. The next is a pie chart, and this looks at the total responses of all of the staff groups. So the highest being 44% from clinical nurses, followed by 15% in volunteers, and then 11% in attending physicians. The next slide here shows the results from the actual staff survey response itself. There are three different pie charts, the first being prenatal brain development, the second is postnatal, and then the the final one is the language outcomes. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the numbers here. So the percent within the pie charts represent the total percent of the staff who got these, who answered the surveys. The numbers below are color coordinated. So, for example, in the first pie chart, you can see that zero percent is blue, and that coordinates to zero um, percent of the questions being answered correctly, followed by green, which is about a third of the questions being answered correctly, yellow, which is about 67 percent, and then finally red, which is 100 percent. So we saw that when it came to prenatal brain development, 7% of the staff got them 100, 100% of the time correctly. When it came to postnatal brain development, only 5% of the staff got 100% of the questions correctly. However, when it came to language outcomes, 73% of the staff got 100% questions correctly. And they did very well when it came to this. So when it came to staff practices related to language exposure and, in particular, to reading books, 94% of the staff reported there were books present at the bedside. However, 93% never read to their patients. And then when it came to staff interaction, 17% encouraged parents to read to their infants and only 28% of the staff reported maybe it would be difficult for them to read to their patients. In terms of staff practices, 65% of the staff members reported that they talked to their patients during every interaction. And the bar chart here further divides that, so 65% being on every interaction, 27% on most interaction, and then three in fewer interactions. And the commonest interactions were holding, care times, and daily physical exam. So finally, I'd like to highlight where we are in terms of our <coughs> quality improvement project. So we were successful in conducting both the parent surveys as well as the staff survey. We've also been successful in implementing the staff mandatory education, which was the cornerstone module, as well as the parent education, which is the pamphlet. We're currently in the process of getting books from the Reach to Grow program into our NICU. So in conclusion. Our single center survey study showed that there is a considerable knowledge gap regarding brain development and language outcomes amongst all NICU staff. Although staff talk to their patients during daily interactions, very few read to their patients or encourage parents to read to their infants. As part of the whole quality improvement project, educational resources for staff and parents have been implemented, and we'll continue to do follow-up surveys to monitor NICU staff and parents' attitudes towards reading and language exposure. I'd like to take this moment to share some acknowledgments. I'd like to thank Dr. Leinwaller, who was the project lead, and also the mentor for my project throughout the whole process. I'd also like to thank Kim, Josh, and Emily for their invaluable efforts throughout the project. And then finally, I'd also like to thank the rest of the team members. Thank you. Thank you so much,
1: okay, thank you. I want to present you with your certificate for your uh-huh. meritorious platform presentation. Oh. Thank you so and much. A check from Dr. Salazar. Oh, thank you. Absolutely, well deserved. <laughs> thank
3: you. You want to hang out for oh, questions? Yeah. Yes,
2: I good. have a question. First of all, that was a great talk. So our question is from it's from Arthur Bloomer. For those babies whose moms didn't come in, did you have surrogate readers?
3: That's a great question. So in our NICU, so especially pre-COVID, we did have volunteers and cuddlers who were there present and they would kind of take over, you know, reading to the parents, or we also had the nurses themselves who would act as the surrogates there. Okay. I have a
0: question. Anthony, the, uh, that was a great presentation and thank you. Uh, the you know our our NICU both NICUs here at Connecticut Children's uh, are not closed. I mean they're they're open rooms and and, and as you properly pointed out very loud. Um, so what are, in, in, in addition to building a new NIC, which we are, um, how would you, what do you recommend that we do in, in the midst of the noise? I mean, reading, perhaps adding to the noise by doing that. What is your thought on that?
3: Well, that's a great question. There have been actually studies, especially from Brown, that um, a lot of the NICU centers now have to be, you know, single rooms. Um, unfortunately, in our NICU right now we don't, but then there are specific precautions. So for example, when we have certain infants who are oscillated or who require a very intensive care unit, they tend to take the whole bed space rather than you know, sharing it with two other infants. Um, we also make sure that we have um, labels and notifications around the infant to just to make sure they have quiet time, so we want to try and like avoid too much exposure to alarms um and then also you know the babies who are late-term infants who are feeding and growing they're in a separate part of the NICU, which is much quieter as well so we do try to try and limit you know the noise as much as possible but ideally in the future it would be great to you know have single room you know NICU centers
0: thank you anthony and uh, and congratulations on your new fellowship that you're going to head much. into I, I know you finished on thursday here and then probably within a day or so you're uh, <laughs> Uh, going to Yale University to to do your your training, but we'll bring you back. People tend to come back.
3: <laughs> right, Neonatology. Thank you.
0: <laughs> oh, there there is another uh, there is another question f- from Leon Kamides, Dr. Kamides. asked, several times you mentioned maternal voice, is that in contradistinction to paternal voice, or has that been studied? Great question, Leon.
3: That's actually a great question. Um, unfortunately, I don't know the literature when it came to paternal voice, um, but I think that you know maternal voice is kind of almost a surrogate for having parental voice, um, and I hope that both paternal and maternal voice is just as important as each other. <laughs> Thank you:
0: <laughs> the room is clapping your- <laughs>
2: As a new grandfather. I hope it matters whether it's maternal or paternal. Okay, that was great. So moving on with our program, our next speaker is Hadi El Tayabi. His uh, talk is entitled Allogenic Blood Transfusion and AIS Surgery, which Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis, he told me, how a national database can improve patient safety.
4: All right, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, So again, the topic is titled um, Allogenic Blood Transfusion and Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis Surgery, or AIS Surgery, um, how the NESCO database can improve uh, patient safety. Uh, First of all, I would like to thank all the uh, co-authors this project for their generous participation and efforts. Uh, We have no disclosures. Uh, So uh, posterior spinal fusion in treating scoliotic curves uh, is considered to be an invasive procedure. procedure is invasive with multiple potential complications, including acute infection, paralysis, pulmonary complications, uh, pseudoarthrosis, and uh, blood transfusion that might mandate uh, blood loss that might mandate blood transfusion. Uh, This study came out in 2014. It included 44,000 patients from a nationwide inpatient database. they reported that 30% of patients, uh, pediatric patients with idiopathic scoliosis, who underwent spinal fusion, uh, received blood transfusion. Well, blood transfusion is not without complications. Uh, back in the days, we were uh, worried about bloodborne infections, although uh, much less nowadays. Now we are more concerned um, of um, non-infectious, immune-modulated risks, transfusion-related uh, acute lung injuries, and uh, coagulopathies. Uh, This study came out in 2019 It's a systematic review that included 76 articles. Um, It uh, reported that transfusion is associated with uh, post-operative complications, especially uh, infectious complications and prolonged length of stay. Uh, It showed also uh, evidence of possible dose-response relationship that may exist between morbid events and the number of RBC units administered. Uh, This was, uh, however, not statistically significant. And we're not even sure that liberal transfusion is helping our critically ill patients. This study came out in 2007. It included 637 critically ill uh, children who were randomized to liberal transfusion uh, versus restrictive transfusion. And they found out there was no difference in multiple organ dysfunction syndrome or mortality. Um, Now, the ACS Nesquip. Um, is a national database that collects 30 day perioperative and post operative data from uh, participating institutions. Uh, it also allows comparison uh, of surgical metrics uh, between those uh, institutions. Um, unfortunately, in 2014, the data showed that Connecticut Children's was a high outlier for transfusions with an odds ratio of 4.1. So, um, We decided to implement a uh, standard uh, transfusion management program. And the hypothesis was that this program can decrease allogenic transfusion rates in AIS. So uh, the protocol um, before 2015, it included uh, cell salvage system, perioperative hypotension, uh, perioperative tranexamic acid, and positioning considerations. Uh, We found Mm -hmm. out there were two deficiencies in this protocol. Number one was a wide variability Uh, in laboratory-based allogenic blood transfusion thresholds among different anesthesia providers. And there was also a lack of communication between the surgeon and the anesthesia team. So we decided to uh, simply encourage discussion between surgeons and anesthesia team during and after each procedure uh, guided by these uh, thresholds for uh, transfusion. And these uh, thresholds were uh, Loose thresholds, just as a starting point for the discussion. These thresholds are uh, laboratory uh, parameters such as um, hematocrit value less than 22%, hemoglobin level less than 7 grams per deciliter, and uh, clinical hypotension, which is um, uh, defined as mean arterial blood pressure less than 65 millimeter mercury, or the need for pressure support despite fluid resuscitation. Inclusion criteria for our patients included a diagnosis of AIS, those who are uh, 10 years or older uh, who received posterior spinal fusion. Uh, Exclusion criteria included those who had syndromic or neuromuscular scoliosis, pre-existing coagulopathy, and osteotomies performed during um, scoliosis surgery. We collected demographic data, estimated blood loss, volume of allogenic blood transfusion, which will be referred to from now on as ALBT, and volume of cell salvage uh, system blood transfusion, which will be referred to from now on as CSBT. Uh, patients were uh, divided into two groups. Group A, those who had the surgery before 2014, uh, before implementation of the new protocol, and Group B, those who had the surgery done between 2015 and 2019, after implementation of the new protocol. These are the results. Uh, group A included 92 patients. Group, P, group B included 198 patients. And there was no uh, statistically significant difference in demographics, including gender, age, fusion levels, BMI, and number of cases done per surgeon. Uh, the ALBT went down from 324 uh, uh, ml per patient in Group A to down to 85 ml per patient in Group B. Uh, The CSBT went down from 326 to 228. And the total blood transfusion um, amount went down from 650 to 313. And this was all statistically significant. This is a uh, histogram that shows the allogenic transfusion rates for AIS surgery. Um, You can see the blue bar uh, represents the total number of patients. Uh, The orange bar represents the number of patients receiving ALBT. And the gray line line there shows the percentage of patients receiving ALBT. So you can see here from the chart, um, the gray line shows that in 2013, uh, 65% of our patients received ALBT in 2013. Uh, This uh, went down to only 22% in 2019, reaching lowest of 8% in 2018. This is another histogram that shows the cell salvage uh, transfusion rates for AI surgeries, uh, surgery in our institution. Uh, you can see the blue bar again shows the total number of patients. The orange bar shows the number of patients receiving CSPT. And the orange line um, up there is the uh, percentage of patients receiving CSPT. And you can see from the orange line, the CSPT was um, stable over time with about uh, 80%, average of 80%. The EBL, or estimated blood loss, uh, ML per patient, has been um, decreasing, but not statistically significant. Uh, So there is no gold standard uh, transfusion rate against which institutions can compare or evaluate their transfusion rate or uh, transfusion protocol. Uh, In this study, the ALBT went down from 65% in 2013 down to 22% in 2019, reaching lowest of 8% in 2018. And this is consistent with recent studies that showed that the ALBT following AIS surgery is somewhere between 13% to 23%. CSBT decreased as well. Um, This was not studied, but we think that this might be a reflection of a general surgeon's general reservation to do any sort of blood transfusion. Limitations, of course, um, include a Hawthorne effect, maybe partially, however, the argument against this is uh, that the um, effect of the new protocol was long-lasting. Confounding factor uh, may uh, be an improvement in surgical technique over time that decreased blood loss and thus uh, decreased the uh, blood transfusion. However, there was no obvious change in surgical uh, practice over time that we um, can point out. Um, How do we calculate the EBL? is another limitation. We relied on OR staff worksheet, which is not 100% accurate. It's a rough estimate. And we are also aware that the uh, new protocol um, uh, relied on loose guidelines that were superseded by intraoperative communication. There were no rigid parameters. So we concluded that evidence-based standardization of transfusion decisions for patients with AIS uh, undergoing spine fusion Uh, lowers volume of ALBT per patients, as well as the total number of patients receiving ALBT. And the critical components to success was communication between surgical team and anesthesia and and a standard transfusion threshold as a starting point for discussion. Thank you.
2: so first of all, from Christian, Kristen, excuse me, Pierce, EBL has changed somewhat. Has the way you estimate the blood loss changed? How confident know. are you in these estimates?
4: So again, we uh, this was one of the limitations. Um, thank you so much for the question, first, uh, Dr. Pierce. Um, so uh, again, we relied on the our uh, staff worksheet and um, the EBL estimates. Uh, Um, It's uh, the decision of the EBL, how much the EBL is, uh, comes from both the anesthesia and the surgeons uh, during and after the case. Uh, It's uh, again, it's a rough estimate that we uh, derived from the uh, OR staff worksheet, and it's uh, not 100% accurate. Uh, But um, according to the numbers that we got, uh, uh, the the change in EBL, although decreasing, but was not statistically significant.
2: Okay. So Dr. Alex Hogan is weighing in with a question that uh, Looks like it may be a little tough. Why wasn't this data displayed as run charts, statistical process control charts? What was the SMART aim of this project?
4: Um, Can you repeat the question again?
2: Okay. Why wasn't this data displayed as run charts slash statistical process control charts? What was the SMART aim of this project? SMART is in all caps, so it's an acronym. You get get a double prize if you can answer this question.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not sure if I can answer the, uh, I don't have an answer for the first part of the the question, but uh, what is the smart aim of the project was to um, simply point out that using, was simply point out that uh, using the um, uh, national, uh, accessible uh, national database um, can help uh, improve uh, patient care. So we uh, obviously showed that from our analysis of the NESCO data in 2014 and uh, upon which we changed our protocols and this showed good results obviously in uh, uh, blood transfusion rates. Um, although we um, uh, admit that there might be a partial Hawthorne effect. Uh, but again, uh, in the end, we had uh, good results uh, after simply analyzing national data provided through the Nesquip uh, data.
2: Okay. So finally, um, Kristen Pierce says excellent presentation.
4: Thank you so much, Dr. Pierce. <laughs> and I wanted
1: to uh, present you with your certificate for your meritorious platform
5: presentation Thank you and so the all-important check from <laughs> Dr. Salazar. <laughs> Thank
1: you so much. Congratulations. So so much. Well done.
2: We'll get Dr. Hogan up here next year and ask him a question he can't answer. We we have long memories. Okay, so for our next speaker, it, it's it's a remote presentation. I'm told it's Timothy Famdui. His talk is called Kawasaki Disease in the United States before and during the COVID era. So somebody is controlling this. Right? It's not me.
5: Thank you very much. Can you guys hear me? Go ahead. Wonderful. My name is Timothy Phamdui, and ladies and gentlemen, I am here to report on the epidemiology of Kawasaki disease in the United States before and during the COVID era. So Kawasaki disease is an acute, febrile, and self-limited vasculitis that typically affects children less than five years of age. Coronary artery aneurysms, or ectasias, developing up to 25% of untreated children, and may result in myocardial infarction or sudden death. In the U.S., over the past two decades, the incidence of Kawasaki disease has reported to be stable. And historically, there is a slight male predominance with a male-female ratio of 1.5 to 1, as well as an overrepresentation in Asians uh, or patients who identify as Asians or Pacific Islander. Compared to the general population, the etiology and pathogenesis of the disease is unclear. However, several studies suggest an association with viral causes. Next slide. Coronaviruses associated with, in fact, coronaviruses have been associated with Kawasaki disease even before the COVID pandemic. And early in the pandemic, studies from France and Italy report an increase in monthly incidents by four and 30-fold respectively. In the US, rates of KD-like cases were initially reported to increase as well. However, a national study has yet to be done reporting on the epidemiology of Kawasaki in the US since the pandemic. Next slide. And so uh, the purpose of our study was to determine the incidence of Kawasaki during the year 2020 and to compare it to a historic time period of January 1st, 2016 through December 31st, 2019, and to compare the characteristics of children in each cohort. Next slide. We conducted a retrospective cohort study using the Pediatric Health Information System, a database, administrative database, compiled by the Children's Hospital Association in conjunction with 51 children's hospitals across the United States, pulling data from January 2016 through December 2020. Next slide. For our study, we included children admitted to a FIS hospital aged birth through 17 years of age with the ICD-10 diagnosis code for Kawasaki disease who received at least one dose of IVIG. Next slide. We excluded those who had second admissions, those who were missing key data elements, and those who did not receive IVIG during the study period. Next slide. Records were divided into two groups. The first group were those admitted during the year 2020, and the second group, the historic group, being those admitted between January 1st, 2016, through December 31st, 2019. Next slide. We collected the following data elements. We defined severe disease as those who received adjunctive therapy or IVIG resistance therapy in accordance with the 2017 American Association Guidelines for Kawasaki Disease. Slide. And these are our results. Next slide. This graph depicts the number of Kawasaki disease hospitalizations in the United States during our study period. There are three things I'd like to highlight about this graph. Number one, that Kawasaki disease hospitalizations demonstrated a seasonal variability with annual peak incidents between December and April. Number two, that Kawasaki disease admissions between 2016 through 2019 were stable with an average annual Kawasaki admission rate of 1700. And that is in comparison to a significant decrease in the year 2020 with approximately 1400 uh, admissions. And then finally, there were two peaks observed in 2020, the first being in January and the second in May. Next slide. A total of 8,271 subjects were included in our study. We report that the median age increase from our historic cohort to our 2020 cohort from 2.9 to 3.1. And this is driven by an increase in hospitalizations in those aged 10 through 17, as well as a corresponding decrease in those aged one through four. Next slide. The majority of the subjects were male, uh, which was sim- similar across the study period. Next slide. In regards to race, although the rate of subjects identified as Asian showed a significant decrease in both cohorts, there's a significant Asian overrepresentation. Next slide. The remaining distribution of race and ethnicities were unchanged throughout the study period. Next slide. Rates of private insurance decreased, whereas rates of public insurance increased. Next slide. There was a significant increase in the rate of ICU admissions nearly double from 8% in 2016 through 2019 to 15% in the 2020 cohort. Next slide. Additionally, there was a significant increase in those cases identified as severe as evidenced by those cases increasing in adjunctive therapy as well as increases in IV-IG resistance therapy usage. Next slide. This graph depicts the rates of Kawasaki disease admissions per 100,000 hospitalizations. In the red shaded area, we see the percentage or the amount of severe cases And in the blue shaded region, we see non-severe. From June through November of 2020, over 45% of Kawasaki disease hospitalizations were identified as severe versus 33% in the corresponding four years historically. A second peak was noted in May, and this is accentuated by the paucity of admissions during the early months of the pandemic. Next slide. The second peak rose above the predicted 95% confidence interval of the seasonally adjusted autoregressive time series model developed from the historic data of 2016 through 2019. Next slide. And so we show that Kawasaki disease hospitalizations were stable between 2016 through 2019. And in 2020, there was a significant decrease given that the rates of influenza and other viral illnesses had declined in 2020 as a result of public health measures such as mask mandates and social distancing policies the decrease in kawasaki disease we suspect during the pandemic period may be due to a decrease in viruses that otherwise would have been traditionally associated with kawasaki disease the second spike in may may be interpreted initially as a potential association between SARS-CoV-2 and Kawasaki disease given a temporal delay and that other coronaviruses had been associated with Kawasaki disease however as we will discuss in a moment we suspect it was more of a misdiagnosis of a different disease entity as Kawasaki disease especially as towards the later months of 2020 there was a decrease in Kawasaki disease incidents, despite an increase in COVID rates. Next slide. And children during the the year 2020 with ICD-10 coding for Kawasaki disease was demonstrated to have increase in age, decrease in Asian um, rates, as well as an increase in public insurance. The male to female ratio was similar to historic reports. Next slide. As shown earlier, we note a higher rate of ICU admissions and more severe disease in 2020. Worsening morbidity we feel could be due to, one, a true increase in severity incidents, two, the emergence of a new trigger for Kawasaki disease with a predilection for more severe, severe phenotype, such as a novel coronavirus, or three, alternatively, in 2020, a new disease entity known as multi system inflammatory syndrome in children, MISC, became increasingly recognized as a post viral inflammatory sequelae of COVID 19. And given the significant clinical overlap between the conditions, and that guidance on ICD 10 coding. Uh, for MISC was not introduced until approximately July 2020. Our observed findings, as well as this, the second peak in May, could potentially be attributed to the mislabeling of the new disease entity MISC as Kawasaki. And this is supported by the following observation number one, an increase in median age given that MISC commonly affects older children. Number two, an increase in adjunctive therapy as steroid therapy is increasingly becoming standard treatment for MISC. Number three, increase in public insurance, given that COVID, the precursor for MISC, disproportionately affected children with lower social economic status. And number four, an increase in ICU admissions, given that myocardial dysfunction, as well as shock, more commonly occurs in. MISC. And then finally, that there was an observed decreased incidence in KD rates after guidance on ICD 10 coding for MISC was published, and despite an increase in COVID rates later in the later months of 2020. Next slide. Some limitations should be acknowledged. Our data relies heavily on discharge ICD diagnosis codes which may not always reflect a patient's actual diagnosis. And given the nature of the database, we are unable to review the patient's charts for the clinical data and lab results to verify these diagnoses. And then finally, given that the overlap between MISC and Kawasaki's disease is still under investigation, there's much to be learned. Next slide. In conclusion, compared to the prior years, in 2020, the annual rate of pediatric Kawasaki disease admissions decreased. A second peak of subjects with ICD 10 coding for Kawasaki disease was observed in May. Older children with public insurance and severe disease showed the greatest increase, potentially reflective of MISC. Given that long term complications of MISC have yet to be fully elucidated, children with the diagnosis code for Kawasaki disease, especially early in the pandemic, may warrant close monitoring by pediatricians, cardiologists, and clinicians alike. And finally, clinicians should be wary of a possible rise in Kawasaki disease rates in the post-COVID-19 era as mass mandates are lifted and other viruses associated with Kawasaki disease return. Before I conclude, I'd like to make a few acknowledgements. I'd like to thank Dr. Smith, Kathy Hurst, Dr. Sturm, for your help and your mentorship throughout the project. I'd like to uh, extend my appreciation to Dr. Brimacombe, Dr. Hogan, and Dr. Salazar for your contributions in this project. This concludes my talk. Thank you for your time and for your attention.
2: Uh, we have questions? No questions. No, OK, I, I have one. Uh, so, Timothy, um, so it, it does appear as if there's some real problems in the databases. these patients, I think, clearly have been misdiagnosed. Um, is there going to be any effort or are you aware of any way in which this can be corrected?
5: Yeah, so that is one of the, the greatest limitations of the FIS database. Unfortunately, we can't go into the patient's chart to make a full assessment of their clinical history their documentation, their lab work to make that full diagnosis. And then on top of that, even if if we were able to go into the patient's chart to review their labs, their clinical documentation, it's not guaranteed that we would be able to fully elucidate or differentiate between the two disease entities. Number one, because um, the awareness of this new disease entity um, did not uh, come up right at the beginning of the uh, COVID pandemic. And then number two, ubiquitous testing for COVID uh, was not implemented until much later in the uh, pandemic.
2: I was wondering, for, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, for our patients, uh, perhaps some of them we could go back and do serological studies and see if they if they actually had COVID-19. So, but we do have a question from Dr. Ching Lao. So if we believe there is an infectious etiology to Kawasaki's disease, and I think we do, is it possible to attribute the decrease in incidence among the Asian population to the higher compliance of that population to masking?
5: Dr. Lau, that's a really great question. Uh, In fact, in our manuscript write-up, which we're about to submit, um, I I did a comparison with the Asian um, or East Asian countries in which Interestingly, there is a paucity of MISC reported in those countries, um, and whether that's due to better or more strict uh, adherence to uh, public health policies such as masking or stay-at-home policies um, has yet to be uh, fully, you know, uh, described. I mean, I could potentially see that as a, a possibility. Um, interestingly, there's a new um, JAMA article literally published, uh, I want to say four or five days ago, um, showing an increased risk for uh, patients with, uh, identify, who identified as Asians to develop MISC, which is kind of a bit of a, 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 a incongruency there. Um, but I, I, I think that's a really great question, Dr. Lau, and something that we should uh, definitely look into a little bit more in the future. Thank you, Tim. We we have to move on. Um, yes, sir.
0: Dr. Smith will have uh, the ten thousand dollar check for you and your, uh, your survey. Uh, so thank you very much. We'll move on to the next speaker. Thank you, sir. Take care.
2: Our last speaker, Kamal Parmar, is going to talk about comparison of serum and point of care beta hydroxybutyrate measurement. In healthy ch- children after overnight fast.
6: Alright, thank you, everyone. Um, I'll just get started. I have no financial disclosure. Um, I've used the Precision Extra ketone meter for this study. Um, for learning objectives, um, the recognize the positive of data regarding normative values for beta-hydroxybutrate in healthy children, uh, discuss how the point-of-care beta-hydroxybutyrate measurement compares to serum um, in also healthy children's, uh, describe the effect of age, biological factors, and anthropometrics on uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate values, and and able to apply the research outcome to the clinical management of patients by differentiating physiological from pathological ketosis in children. So, going over a little bit about the background of BHP levels, Um, as we know that BHP is the primary ketone in the blood. Uh, It is produced as an alternative energy source when glucose resources are lacking. It is a sign of metabolic stress in an individual with a glucose homeostasis abnormality. BHP levels have been defined in patients with diabetes and in patients with some known metabolic disease like glycogen storage disease. There have been studies of fasting ketones in healthy pediatric patients, but the studies have been done more than 30 years ago using older assays and assays that did not separate the BHP from other ketones. And it have not been investigated much in infant or toddler. Um, Regarding the comparison studies, we do have a point-of-care ketone meter available now, just like a glucose meter. Uh, The validation of this meter with the serum BHP was performed primarily in patients with diabetes, and there are animal studies. But those population is significantly different, and their values are different, and data in healthy pediatric patients is lacking. So giving us the goals of this research, Uh, is to compare a commercially available point-of-care ketone meter with serum BHP in healthy children without known endocrine or metabolic disorder after an overnight fast to describe the distribution of those BHP values in different age groups and to describe the correlation between BHP and different variables, for example, age, body mass index, glucose, cortisol, and fasting duration. We obtained institutional review board approval for this prospective pilot project. We recruited 100 participants from elective surgeries from July to November 2020. Uh, We followed standard operating protocol that we created for this study. Uh, we had defined inclusion and exclusion criteria. Children less than or equal to 18 years of age undergoing elective surgeries um, at our institutions were eligible and obviously the ability and willingness to participate and sign the informed consent form from legal guardian was necessary. We also obtained the assent from the participant when it was appropriate. Patients with diabetes, hypopit, adrenal metabolic, Or inflammatory disorders, dietary restrictions, trauma, any use of medication that might affect the blood sugar were excluded. The power calculation for method comparison uh, was done ahead and we needed about 94 samples for more than 90 uh, percent power. Uh, We collected data uh, at the beginning of the study that included age, duration of fast, medical history and medications, as well as the body mass index. We collected 3 to 4 ml of blood at the time of intravenous line placement before their surgery. We've performed testing methods using appropriate current methods. So point of care testing by precision extra ketone meter that uses the enzymatic method and same as serum uh, BHP that uses the enzymatic method. Serum glucose uh, was performed by spectrometry, and serum cortisol by immunoassay method. So this is the table one showing the baseline characteristic of the participant. Uh, We included 94 uh, samples into the data analysis. Uh, The four did not meet the criteria, and the two pair data were missing, um, having about 54% male and 46% female. Age ranged from 6 months to 18 years of age with the mean age of 8.3, uh, plus or minus standard deviation of 5.7 years. Uh, BMI had a wide range with a mean of 19.3, plus or minus standard deviation of 5.2. Um, and mean duration of FAST for all participants were 12.5, plus or minus standard deviation of 2.4 hours. Uh, This is the major primary outcome. Uh, As we can see, uh, their serum BHP range from 0 to 1.2 millimole per liter with the mean of Uh, 0.25. Point-of-care BHP range from 0 to 1.1 with the mean of 0.18. Serum glucose range from 70 to 121 with the mean of 90 and a similar median of 89 milligram per deciliter, and serum cortisol had a mean around mean and median around the same, about 9 milligram per deciliter. It is important to note over here that the serum BHP over 1 millivolt per liter was rare after an overnight spa after an overnight fast in all participants. Um, and about two-thirds of the children had a uh, levels less than 0.3 millimole per liter after an overnight fast. So this is the first graph. Uh, uh, This shows uh, the the agreement. Uh, We use the Bland almond plot analysis for method comparison between point of care and serum BHP. And it shows that about 97% of the values fall within our hypothesized Uh, mean difference which was defined ahead of the surgery. There was a strong positive correlation as well between serum and point-of-care BHP with the correlation coefficient of 0.8. We also found that BHP levels uh, were significantly higher in younger children with the mean and median of 0.4 millimole per liter compared to older children who had a mean of 0.2 and a median of 0.1 millimole per liter. And this one was significant using man witness use test. Uh, We also found that BHP levels decrease with increasing age. So here we show that there was a weak but significant correlation using Spearman's rank test. And when we control uh, this data, with other variables, like standardized BMI, fasting duration, and glucose values, there was no difference in the correlation coefficient or statistical significance. Um, There are a few limitations. This may not be truly generalizable to larger pediatric population, but we tried uh, to minimize the selection bias uh, via inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, there are also other FD-approved point-of-care ketone meters available um, that may require further validation as well. Um, and we do believe that the further studies to define the normative ranges of these fasting ketones uh, in healthy pediatric patients is necessary to fully utilize and validate this tool. Uh, to conclude, uh, point-of-care BHP meter is comparable to serum BHP, in healthy children after an overnight fast. So, home-based pHp meter can be used in diagnostic workup in children, which we have a concern for disorder of hypoglycemia and or ketosis. Younger children less than or equal to 3 years of age have higher pHp levels after an overnight fast compared to older children, but they do need additional studies to define the normative ranges uh, for this research project. The correlation between serum BHP and different variables are not impressive, but it may need higher power and or longer fasting duration as well. So concluding towards the future, ultimately expanding this work will better define the difference between ketones that are normal after an overnight fast versus those that can raise the concern for underlying metabolic disorders. Um, And this could better identify those that require more comprehensive evaluation like fasting studies or genetic testing or more blood work. These are my relevant references. And I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge all the different teams that have been involved, uh, including anesthesia team, general surgery team, ENT, orthopedics, urology, Um, or staff at nurses, clinical trial units, um, clinical lab, and obviously my mentors and division of endocrinology. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, We have any questions? No? No? Let's give it a second. While we're waiting, I guess as a a non, we don't, no, yes, no? Uh, As a non-pediatrician, it seems to me another potential use of this would be for people to monitor themselves who are on on ketogenic diets?
6: Um, I think that's a good question. Like, for a ketogenic diet, we excluded patients who were on any special diet, like ketogenic diet, so they can use, they obviously use this ketone meter to monitor their ketones at home. Um, This is more focused on a patient. Uh, who have some disorder of ketotic hypoglycemia, like a toddler or young children who comes in into the ED and they are sick and they have ketones. Um, It could be a first presentation of some kind of metabolic disorder, or uh, it could be a normal uh, physiological response to some kind of pathological process. So, and we don't have a data about the healthy children's, what is the normal value for their ketone levels. Um, And we've been using the data from the diabetes population to even address the hypoglycemia and the ketones in that population. So we use this study to see there is a need for more uh, uh, defining those values in healthy children so we can help the patient who have this ketotic hypoglycemia and more labeled as idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia, although it's a diagnosis of exclusion.
2: I think it could be a very powerful clinical tool. There's no question about it. So we do have a question from Neil Stein. Was point-of-care BHB obtained by finger stick or the same sample as the serum assessment?
6: So um, we use the same. We use uh, the blood drop that we collected from the intravenous line. So it was a whole blood um, that we used for testing of the point-of-care ketones.
1: would like to present you with your certificate for your meritorious Uh, platform presentation. And of course, the all-important check from Dr. Salazar. Well done. Thank you you so much.
2: So I'd like to close our sessions this morning. First of all, I want to congratulate all of our presenters for doing such an incredible job with their talks. I know when I was their age, I don't think I could have spoken coherently for five minutes in front of an audience. Some people say I still can't. And uh, I also want to say how impressed I am that they've been able to do this quality of research in the midst of COVID. Um, we all know the kinds of barriers that it created, but uh, at their level, to be able to see a research project through to me is, is really amazing. So on that, uh, I think we're done. We are going to have a group picture. Uh, I guess Timothy, I don't see how he's going to be able to be in the picture, but. Maybe we'll figure something out. But anyway, thank you very much for your attention, and uh, same time next year. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, everyone. We'll see you on Friday for Ask the Experts, and then uh, we have two more Grand Rounds. On Tuesday, Dr. Cloutier will be presenting new asthma guidelines, and then the week after, there'll be another Dr. Salazar presenting a topic on congenital syphilis. So please join us, and that'll be the last one. So take care. Be safe. We'll see you on Friday. Bye-bye.